Uh, well, this uh, Sunday uh, in the church calendar, it marks the last Sunday, as Rachel mentioned earlier, of ordinary time. So amazing, that name, ordinary time. Uh, Jesus isn't being born. He's not about to be born. He's not about to die. He's not dying. And so it's just ordinary time, right? And the last Sunday of ordinary time is, is named um, Christ the King Sunday. And um, so that made this not an ordinary feeling Sunday for me as I was preparing to um, talk about that. And I was thinking like, okay, ordinary time, you know, you get to just kind of move through these passages and, and talk about what's relevant to, to us as we look at those scriptures. And then, then we get to Christ the King, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is a lot. This is big to try to wrestle with this idea of a crucified man who we exalt as king of the universe, of the entire cosmos. And it, it, it got me to think about how, um, how we see things and we get familiar with things and we feel like we know them just because we're familiar with them. So um, anybody here from Memphis, like you grew up here, maybe you weren't born here, but yeah, okay, so a few of us. Have you ever talked to somebody who was a tourist in Memphis or you were outside of Memphis and somebody said, oh, I've been to Memphis before. It's great. I love it. And you're like, oh, okay, so what would you like about Memphis? You know, and they start explaining things. And at first, it's like the normal stuff, you know, it's like, well, you know, Beale Street's cool and this is cool. And, and then every once in a while, they start explaining things about Memphis and they're like, have you been to that, that one spot? down here at South Main in this restaurant, or did you try um, going over here? And sometimes I'm listening and I'm like, oh, no, I really, I don't know anything about that. And I've lived here a really long time. And, and you found something that you appreciate about Memphis and you're just a visitor. But somehow me living here as long as I have, and maybe some of you as well, you just drive by things, you walk by things, and you feel like you know Memphis until you start hearing somebody else talk about it who came there who was excited to see different things. Anybody ever been there with anywhere you've lived where you've, you've had that type of experience? Okay, five of us, seven, okay, 20, no, there we go. Um, yeah, and I think... I think that is really true a lot of times with our Christianity in the United States. It's, it's something everybody feels like they know. That we just, we're so close to it all the time. There's crosses everywhere. Everybody wears a cross and sometimes they have diamonds on it and stuff like that. And there's churches all over the place and we walk around these things and we're like, yeah, Christianity, I know that. That's about, you know, Jesus died for your sins. That's, that's, that's what that is. And so this morning, as we look at these texts, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded that sometimes you have to take a, 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 another look at something. You have to listen to a different voice than what you have been to be able to see things. Like somebody might see Memphis in a different way. And even for those of us who said, you know what, 
I'm, this is kind of my last chance with church, or this is, I don't really know what I believe or think about this stuff. Well, great, that's good. Because if you've ever rejected an idea of God or rejected an idea of Christianity, that probably wasn't actually who God was. It was what somebody told you or repeated a lot of times about who God was. But we all have pieces of the pie. We all have parts that we can see and articulate in a way that's actually true or makes sense. So go ahead and reject those things. Go ahead and, and say, I'm not going to buy into that. And let's look at some scripture and see if we can do it like the Memphis tourist, okay? So, Jesus as king. Let's start with this passage in Jeremiah written during a time where um, there is so much going wrong uh, in Israel, and the highlight of this text is around the leadership of the time. And, and what we find in the writers in the times of Jeremiah and other prophets is that um, Israel has experienced all kinds of problems and people are in exile in different places and um, they're constantly trying to figure out and the prophets are constantly trying to tell them why that is, why you've gotten into this place that you're in right now. You ever ask that question? Why God, why am I here? And then Lots of people have answers for you usually, you know, or there's people on TV that have answers like, well, that flood happened because there's a whole lot of people um, engaging in some kind of illicit sexuality. So that's why God flooded that place. There's always answers that come up. And this passage is really no different in that there, there are all kinds of problems and there are answers that come up. But this particular answer is extremely relevant um, to this idea of Christ as king, of, of Jesus as king. And I want to highlight these verses here. It says uh, in verse 5, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is something um, I feel like human beings are always longing for. Like, there's, there's rarely a time in history anywhere where everybody's like, man, I'm so glad we have all the leaders and rulers that we do because they're reigning so wisely and justly. I wouldn't change a thing about it. Sometimes it's worse than others. For me right now, my perceptions of things, it's really, really bad. We're in a really bad situation right now. Um, we do not have someone ruling wisely and justly uh, in our country. And so this passage um, is of particular um, relevance to me, and it makes me hope for something better, for something greater. And, and the problem, I think is not that we hope and want this, but it's how we imagine this might look. Because 
if we were all to write down on paper on our own what it looked like for someone to rule wisely and justly, it would look different. We have different ideas of what it means to rule with justice. That's why we live, we try to live in this democracy so people can kind of vote on what they think justice best looks like and and what it looks like to be wise with the things um, that we are stewarding and in charge of. And so when when we look at this passage and we think about this longing of uh, the Israelites, but also our own longings, we have to admit that it's something that we long for, but that we wouldn't necessarily agree on what it looks like now or then, if it ever came to fruition. And so in this passage, we see, um, we, we see a pairing with the Luke passage given by the church calendar that is suggesting to us what this might look like when God actually does show up, when he actually does appear and rule with justice and wisdom. And the problem with it, what makes it so hard, so difficult for us to actually see and get and for it to transform our lives is it just doesn't fit our imagination. It doesn't fit my imagination. And so when we look at the Luke passage here that we're going to be transitioning to for the rest of our time, in that first verse, in verse 34, or the second verse, 34, we see Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then the soldiers divided up his clothes by, by casting lots. So here we have Jesus hanging on a cross, And what he is offering to the people around him as he is in one of the most inhumane, humiliating torture devices that man has conceived is forgiveness. I mean, who wants that for a king? Who wants somebody to say, hey, you're torturing me, abusing me. Hey, I, I forgive you. For my king, I want somebody who could come in, kick that cross down, and whoop some Romans. Like use the, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like, or the rock, you know, and grab the cross and like hit them with it, you know. And that's what the Israelites, the Jewish people, were expecting and hoping for when they read these prophecies by people like Jeremiah, is we're waiting for this dude. He's going to come in. He's going to roll in deep. He's going to gather all the Israelites from all over the place, make this big, huge army, and he's going to subdue all the other nations by force, by power, because might shows what's right. That's what the Romans were doing in that moment. They were saying, you know who gets to decide what's right and what's good is us, the people who have the power to kill you in the most humiliating way possible. We get to say what's right and what's wrong. 
Through our industrial military complex, we set the standard of what's right and what's just. And, and, and here's, here's the human problem with this, is we, with our short attention spans and our desire for immediate gratification, we want to worship power. We want to worship this kind of, of thinking and acting in the world as long as those people are on our side, right? Am I right? But the moment those people have interests who hold that power that are different from ours, then we've got a problem. And everything they do is critiquable, but as long as that cross has somebody else that doesn't look or sound like me on it, hey, keep doing your thing. So what is Jesus forgiving these people for? He's forgiving them from worshiping this power. For forgiving them for succumbing to the cynicism of how life is supposed to work. That what other system is there except for the most powerful person gets to be king of the hill. The biggest kid gets fir get picked first on the kickball team. And, and so they see Jesus there, and they say, yeah, see? Yeah, you thought you could do it different, and maybe I even hoped you could. Maybe a little bit of part of me was still alive enough to hope it would be true, but you failed like everybody else. You failed. You're just up there dying like hundreds, thousands of other Jewish men who tried to revolt against the Roman Empire. Thousands. He was one of thousands that was crucified. This is so deep for Sunday morning before Thanksgiving. It's a lot. Jesus here is not uh, forgiving this system. In fact, the system is... is is the reason why he's there in the first place. His life, the way he lived life, affirming the life of people all throughout this kingdom that were told you're less than, it was a, a, it was a wrench in the gears of this way of living. And so Jesus recognizes the people caught up in this system and he offers them almost as one of his, his first sort of edicts of his new messiahship, his new kingship, forgiveness. And this is what the people say to him, starting in verse 35. They say things like, save yourself. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's messiah the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Why didn't Jesus need to be saved? Because we know he didn't need to be saved, right? We know that. We know that he was not just a man, but that he was also God. We believe that, that that is true. 
And so the question is, why? Why for the first time in human history did someone dying not need to be saved? Because I think this is tied, biblically, to Jesus' kingship. You see, the irony of it, I think the irony of it is that the very reason that he didn't need to be saved was also the reason that he was there in the first place. He was there because his life ran so counter to the way we have come as human beings to think is normal and okay, our sinful way of operating, that we had to kill him because it was so offensive to us that someone could live with that much hope, that much affirmation. And so the people there, as they sneered and they taunted in in, in their deep refusal to feel the hurt of it, the hurt that the hope was dying in front of them, They, 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 they could not accept what he offered. We could not accept what he offered. And so we had to kill him. This is, this is so much of, of what I understand so often what the Bible talks about. is talking about we, needing, we need this forgiveness. It's not just this moral quality of things of, of we should not lie or cheat or steal. Like that's... Of course, you shouldn't do those things. But many of us rejected an idea of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to follow God, because it was boiled down to this. You're really sinful, and um, Jesus died so that you didn't have to get punished for your sin. And so now, if you believe that Jesus died for that, then when you die, you get to go to heaven. Now, hey, I really like the idea of fire insurance. I like the idea that I'm forgiven and that I get, when I die, that my spirit kind of like goes up into this this heavenly place. That's That's a cool idea. And it's an idea that has been proliferated in our culture and our society. But it's not what Jesus taught. It's just not what he taught. What he taught is that the kingdom of heaven was coming to earth, which means we don't need this to be magic, what's happening here. What is happening here is earth and heaven are colliding in the death of this man that something is being cracked open in reality, that up until this point, the only way that we could understand our safety, our security in life, was that if somebody who was on our side had the biggest guns and other people were scared of them. And Jesus is here on a cross allowing these forces to try to stop him. For 
the worst of human intentions to try to stop him. And to say, not only do I not need to retaliate, but that's also kind of the point. That's also kind of what it means to rule, to be a king, is I'm bringing about the very thing all kings and all rulers are constantly babbling about that they are bringing, this this sense of unity. Um, Have you, you know, Jesus is, he's forgiving people. And um, have you ever, have you ever caught somebody doing something and uh, like, you know, they, they, um, they misunderstood something and you know, they're probably going to have to apologize to you. Like where, like where they're, they're in the middle of saying or doing something and you're, you're kind of like secretly a little bit glad that they're doing that because, you know, they're gonna have to turn around and say, Ooh, I messed up. I'm sorry. Ever had that experience before? Jesus is not doing that right now, just so you know. He is actually truly forgiving all acts of violence in this moment, the most horrible acts of violence that we could commit. And the next thing that happens is truly remarkable and unbelievable to me in verse 40. It says, but the other criminal, so two criminals, one on either side of him, rebuked him, rebuked the other criminal, not Jesus. Do you fear God, he said. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This man next to Jesus is is an enemy of the state. He is being punished by the state, and he is receiving the same sort of death that Jesus is. He's right there on the cross next to him. He hears people hurling insults at him, and yet he recognizes something no one else in this scene recognizes. This is so strange. He's dying next to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. he was able to see something as as often the most marginalized of our communities are able to grasp and to see first. That there was a different way to operate. There was a different way to respond. And that Jesus was showing us that way, that he was ushering in something new. What we would find, what the criminal had no way of knowing, is that... Jesus could not be kept dead. That the power of life, the power of divinity in him was so great, it just couldn't even keep him dead. Death could not hold him, the way the song goes. 
And so, here's a question for you. Thinking about this idea that this, this Messiah figure was ushering in a kingdom inaugurated, started by his death, and eventually a resurrection. What don't you need to be saved from? It's, I'm not, I'm not uh, doing what I hope nobody thinks I'm doing. I'm, I'm asking this question in earnest. What do you spend your time trying to be saved from that Jesus isn't offering salvation from? If Jesus' death on the cross is the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that he has shown and modeled and taught, what are the things that you spend your time trying to be saved from that is not the salvation that Jesus offers? We can go back to this idea of the worship of power. the worship of status, this idea of security, of the one with the biggest guns winning. So when we think about our lives, what kingdom is it that we are living in? Because you see, you don't need Jesus's kingdom to, for him to have died for your sins to make you morally clean so that God will let you into heaven. You don't need Jesus's kingdom for that. But if Jesus was crucified for ushering in a new reality, a new way of relating to power and to other people, then you need to take stock and you need to take count of what it is that you're following and that you're worshiping and that you're believing in for your needs right now today. Because that the, the other idea is, hey, hey, one day it'll be good. We'll all go to heaven. But that's not what Jesus said. Even to the thief next to him, he said, paradise now, today starts this. So, I do think this has to do, it's, it's not just guys who got comfortable with their girlfriend and somebody else noted something great about them that lost in this kind of scenario of not seeing and looking at things carefully. It's us too. It's us too. It's not that Jesus didn't save us from our, our bad moral choices. He did. He did. And that's great. But there's so much more than that that he's inviting us into. So what is it? What is, what is the kingdom you're building to save yourself? What does that look like? How is it that you interact at your job or with your spouse where you have to be the one with the biggest guns? You can't admit that you're wrong. You can't forgive another person. You can't take on the shame of just being human. You know, when I, when I think about this question for myself, it, it, it affects every, 
every part of my life, every, every part that I think I'm the one who's got to save myself. I've got to develop my own kingdom. I've got to hedge all my bets. I've got to come off and look a certain way. Our country is caught up in this, even now, with how we think about um, refugees and um, other minorities and jobs and things like that, that, that if, if all we're doing is waiting to go to heaven until we die, then we better just fight it out now for whoever gets what's available right now. But if the kingdom of God has come among us, if the death of Jesus has ushered that in and there truly is another king, there truly is a way to live without being afraid of all the things we were meant and told to be afraid of, then we need to live differently. Can somebody give me some kind of amen, some kind of response? Or some, come on, y'all. Give me something. Thank you. All right, thank you. Another one of the lectionary scriptures uh, for, for this morning comes from Colossians 1, uh, verses 19 through 20. It says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So, why, why do we call Jesus king? Because, as Colossians said, he does what every king, what every leader always promises to do. He does it. He makes it available to us. So often we've missed it. But he brought reconciliation between the things of heaven and the things of earth. You're forgiven. You don't have to scapegoat anybody else. I'll be your scapegoat. Put the blame on me. You, you don't want to take, take responsibility. I'm going to take it for you. I'm going to come down here and finally do this thing. Okay? Now live at peace. Forgive, be forgiven, be united with one another. This is the thing that no other leader can offer you or me. No other security that can be given is that the ruler and creator of all offers peace through his death and resurrection. He offers that to you. He says, you can die and die actually living in life, living in the kingdom of heaven and be brought back, be reanimated because you died in the same life that I did. To believe this, even for a short amount of time, can give you so much courage. So, what do you need to stop trying to be saved from? What is it you keep spending your time 
trying to save yourself from, that Jesus didn't offer salvation from, or that he is currently offering it and not waiting until you die. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you um, for this thing that you did in history, this way that you revealed yourself to us. that you showed up to make peace, to usher in your kingdom, to offer life to us now. Not later, not in the by and by, but right now. Give us the courage to move towards it, even if we do it in fear and trembling and fits and starts and doubt and faith. Let us move towards this reality of your kingdom.